and welcome to episode 55 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we will be discussing um, versatility versus dependability. So uh, the difference between an author who always writes in the same vein or an author who writes something different every time. Who do we have to thank for that, Simon? My friend Paul. Thank you, Paul. Paul. Yes, who thankfully has ideas when we do not. (laughs) Yes, which is all the time, really. (laughs) That well has run dry. (laughs) Yeah, it it ran dry a long time ago. (laughs) Um, And the second part of the podcast, we're going to be comparing two books, uh, two Persephone books, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, The first, Housebound by Winifred Peck, and the second... The Priory by our favourite Dorothy Whipple. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, Simon, how are you and what are you reading? Um, I'm well, thanks. I've just been away for a week in the Peak District. And of course you have. Yes. <laughs> it was. Um, listeners may recall I went away to France for a week <laughs> last year. Um, I assume they think of nothing but my life and my, <laughs> my activities. <laughs> Um, and this was sort of the sequel to that. There were many of the same people. So there were only, only six of us there for the whole week, but a total of 22 people were there for at least one night. So oh it, was, it was quite dizzying to sort of find who'd be there when you woke up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds um, like something else. <laughs> <laughs> nothing like that. <laughs> it was, um, <laughs> I had a very, I had a, it's quite a strange little room, so I did, um, which had no natural light and the bed was oh. on a sort of mezzanine, I guess. Um, it was Where a, was a, this? What sort of place? It was like a holiday cottage. Everyone else's room was quite normal, but mine was just like something <laughs> they squeezed into a corner. <laughs> I didn't do much in there except sleep, so I was quite happy in the house the rest of the time. <laughs> um, but I read quite a few books, but none of them brilliant. All of them were quite good. So um, I read Oliver Sacks, of course, um, An Anthropologist on Mars. I read a Calvin Trillin, Family Man, Essays About His Family. That's probably the, most, the one I enjoyed most. And then a Milan Kundera book called The Book of Laughter and Forgetting. Um, and the oh. one that I was going to mention, because I'm halfway through it, is an Angela Thurkel called Happy Returns, um, which... Have you read much or in any Angela Thurkel? I haven't read any, and I keep meaning to, but not got around to it. Yeah, she's very much our sort of writer, but the problem I have in terms of coming to this one when I've not read one of her books for maybe ten years is that she... All her books will have the same cast of characters, or at least you know right. a character might be minor in one book and then more important in another one, that sort of thing. But um, it does mean that she has to write for the pers- for the reader who does know who these people are and the reader who doesn't know who they are. And this right. book started off with two different party scenes, and I had no idea who any of them were because I couldn't remember any of them. <laughs> <laughs> and 60, 70 pages in, I still have no idea who any of them are. <laughs> so it's, uh, the writing is very good and it's very funny, but it's quite confusing. <laughs> Uh, um, I picked it because I thought I hadn't heard anyone talk about it before, so I thought it might be fun to read a, a lesser-known one, but perhaps that, that wasn't a good idea. Perhaps I should have saved that till I'd read some of the better-known ones. Well, you know, you live and you learn. Well, don't you just, as Alanis Morissette told us. Yeah. <laughs> I presume you're you're ticking off your century of books by doing this. I am. She is on the century somewhere. Um, and indeed, we've now just passed the quarter-way mark, and I have... I think read 31 books for my century of books, so I'm ahead of schedule. Simon, you're a machine. I'm an inspiration to us all, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about you? What are you reading? 
Well, I've read an awful lot, actually, over the last few days. I don't know why. I've just been in one of those yeah. phases where I've just read a lot very quickly. Not um, the books I of guess... podcasts, for sure. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I've, I read The Lark um, by Ooh. Inez Bit, which you recommended quite a while ago now. Mm. Um, and Penguin have just reprinted it as part of the women writers thing for the centenary of, of the right for women to vote in the UK. Um, it's a nice little paperback, and I thought it was wonderful. Absolutely oh, good. Loved it. I'm glad. So it was Absolutely. chosen by Penelope Lively, wasn't it? Because they had women yes, writers picking on with, and yes, recent yeah. podcast top, um, subject, Penelope Lively. Yes, and they were just the connections were myriad, yeah. really. <laughs> Um, but it, I, I thought it was absolutely delightful. I could, oh, I, as I was reading it, I was like, oh, I can just imagine how much Simon loved this. And, he was really, <laughs> um, uh, and we're planning to do it on the next episode, which I'm excited about. Yes, we're going to compare it with High Wages, aren't we? Yes. Which <laughs> actually was my idea, which never happened. <laughs> I know, my goodness. And it's so apt. I know. <laughs> um, so I, I whipped my way through that, and then I got an exciting email from the library telling me that my... Um, <laughs> Sorry, just, my, my an exciting email from... Come in. Um, an exciting email and, from the library is a wonderful sentence, but yes, go Well, ahead. it's the kind of sentence you'd expect me to say, no? <laughs> Absolutely. What was your hold? Was it a, a, um, a lady botanist? No, it wasn't a lady botanist, actually. <laughs> um, it was the, I don't know if you've seen it, The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, um, no. which is a new murder mystery by a guy called Stuart Turton. It's his first book. Mm. And I, a, a friend at university came into our lecture the other week raving about it and saying how good it was. And so I Googled it and it turns out that everybody's reading it. Um, I and I thought, well, well, it's, I, I thought I have to get this book, but I didn't want to spend, you know, £15 on a new hardback mm. in case I didn't like it. So I put myself on the hold list at the library um, and I finally got it and I read it in 24 hours. I stayed up till one o'clock in the morning. It's wow. one of the best books I've read in a very long time. Oh, my goodness. So Seven yeah. Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, you say? Yeah, so good. It's really clever. So the premise, basically, you have to suspend your disbelief. Okay, consider it suspended. Yeah, so it's set in a kind of 1930s house party, which is the sort of thing that you'd love, sure. I'm already ordering a coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the premise is there's this guy who wakes up every day in a different body of one of the guests at oh the house, retaining his memories of the previous day. And it turns out that he's trapped there in a sort of purgatory um, until he solves the mystery of who <laughs> killed Evelyn Hardcastle. And so he has eight, an eight-day cycle in which to solve this, this murder, going, waking up in the body of somebody different each day, so he sees it from different perspectives. And as the days pass, he, he makes more connections and he's able to send, to leave messages and letters and talk to his, his past self. Um, so it's all a little this, bit. This sounds like, so good. <laughs> really, really good. It, it kind of it's a bit confusing at first, but once you get into it, it's oh, it's just so good. And I, I, you know, when you just like, I cannot. I need to know what's going to happen. So I just need to just keep reading. I was booked to go to the cinema. I didn't. <laughs> I, I didn't go. I, you know, I was really tired and falling asleep. I was like, I have to. I have to know what happens. It's so good. Oh my gosh, maybe we should do this on the podcast. Yeah, I think you'd love it. I'm looking it in the library right now. Where is it? There's a copy available somewhere. Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> Oxfordshire County Library. It's available in my local library. 
got to get yourself down there tomorrow. I'm going to. My goodness. I've got, that's sounds so exciting. Well recommended. Yeah, that's really, really good. So I'm very grateful to my university friend for recommending it to me. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've just read that. And then I've also been reading some of the, the Carnegie shortlist has been made this m- last month um, of the latest eight books that are up for the Carnegie Prize. So mm. I've been reading some of those to check that they're not full of awful things to <laughs> give to 11-year-old children. Um, I haven't massively enjoyed any of them so far. Um, okay. But I'm, I'm holding out for some good ones. Although, actually, I did read The Hate You Give, which um, I don't know if you've seen it being Yes, yeah, so, so on Twitter and things, yeah. Yeah, and I actually really, really enjoyed that. I found it quite thought-provoking. I was a bit confused at first. I had an embarrassing conversation in the staff room where it turns out that apparently I'm a 90-year-old trapped in a 31-year-old's body. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just really struggling. I don't understand what all this slang means. I'm like, how are we supposed to know what this slang means? And everyone else was like, it means this, it means that. I was like, oh, well, obviously, I'm just... <laughs> old-fashioned then um so once people had explained to me what what things meant then um i i got it yeah so i really enjoyed it <laughs> good yeah. um it's one yes i think it's one of those books i'm unlikely to ever read mostly because it's got a the letter u for you in the title <laughs> <laughs> um i've also just looked up this evelyn hardcastle book 528 pages long Gosh, and he's still reading 24 hours. Wow. They, they fly by, well, less than 24 hours. Yeah. I must have read it in about, I started reading it um, at about 6 o'clock in the evening and I finished at 1 o'clock. Oh, wow. Gosh. Well, okay. Sorry, yeah. Century of Books. You're going to be <laughs> <laughs> thrown out by this. Um, well, before we get to, in fact, we're talking about a book that I've not read. <laughs> um <laughs> The, yes, thank you to Paul for who came up with the first half of this yes. podcast. And the, in fact, the way he phrased it was something like, if an author you really liked published a book in a completely different genre, would you want to read it? But I thought that we could extend that to versatility versus dependability, <laughs> not least because that's easier to write in the subject line of a blog post. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, were your first thoughts, did you, were there particular authors that came to mind for, to characterize either of these two uh, qualities? Yeah, I think so. And um, for me, the the most dependable author that I can think of, which is very fitting for the podcast, is is Dorothy Whipple. I know what I'm going to get every time I pick up one of her books, and she never disappoints. And I think the fact that I I know that that I know I know exactly what to expect and how I'm going to feel and what sort of world I'm going to be in means that she's a writer that I can choose based on my mood and I'll, I'll know that I'll be satisfied if I'm in that particular mood or I need picking up or I, or I want some comfort reading, I know that I'm always going to get that. Um, and I like the fact that I can reach for her when I, I need her and, and know what I'm going to get. And um, there are other authors that I haven't had that experience with. So um, Margarita Lasky, another Persephone mm. author, I mean, every time you read one of her books, it's a completely different genre it's a different type of writing um a different tone i mean it's just a completely different story different time settings um which in one way i'm in awe of how she can she could um create so many different types of writing and genres and was obviously interested in knowledgeable about so many different areas but it, it means that you can't think oh yes you know i'll pick up a, a margarita lasky i haven't read 
and know that you're going to feel X, Y, Z about it or um, feel the same way as you did about a previous book because each one is, you know, a complete, it's like all different authors, really, I think. Yeah, I hadn't thought of her, but she's a really good example for that. Um, I think I've read four or five, and in fact, excited about the new Persephone, Tori Heaven, coming yes, out. I have that on my bookshelf waiting for me. Ah, lovely. In fact, I think mine might have arrived from the post today, and that might be the parcel. That, <laughs> that <was laughs> that. Um, yeah, she's a great example for that. But I think it's, I found it easier to think of authors for the dependability. Mm. Um, and I guess you, I guess for both of these traits, you have to have some fairly extensive familiarity with an author to know which one they fit into yeah but, but people like well the three i wrote down um because i make notes uh, for dependability <laughs> <All right>. um <laughs> uh, uh pg woodhouse agatha christie and richmond crompton um yeah. and i think i guess we're talking about dependability in terms of doing the same sort of book each time because there's yeah there's some variety in quality particularly yeah, Christie yeah, yeah. and all that sort of thing um but i you yeah you're never going to pick up a a P.G. Woodhouse and find out that it's you know an earnest exploration of the psyche or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess Christie goes, you know, the, the spy books are a bit different from the detective books, and I don't particularly enjoy the spy books. And obviously, she wrote romance novels under a pseudonym, so that's a whole different thing. But um, but generally, I I'm not surprised with what I'm getting when I pick up any of any of those authors. And Rachel Crompton is the most. Con- Consistent is a kind way of putting it. <laughs> Repetitive could <laughs> be another one. That she, her cast of characters only really change their name, um, and they, you know I still really enjoy reading them uh, for the most part. But but yeah, the, there's something um, something really nice about knowing what you're going to get when you pick them up. But also, I, I guess it, I don't feel that I need to be a completist in the same way that I might with an author like Lasky, where I'm thinking I'd love to find out. Um, what else she she can do? <laughs> Whereas with P.G. Woodhouse, I've read maybe fifteen of his ninety-one books, or whatever it is, <laughs> and um, and I know that if I don't read all ninety-one in my life, then I probably haven't missed anything particularly <laughs> special because they're all great. <laughs> all the ones I've read, I've really enjoyed. But, um, but yes, there's nothing lurking at the well. Maybe there is, but as far as I'm aware, there's nothing unexpected in his oeuvre. No, I suppose it's it's like it's two things, there, isn't it? It's you either really enjoy dependability because you always know what you're going to get um, and you can be secure in the fact that in choosing a book by that author, you know you're going to like it. But at the same time, if some, if it is always the same thing, does it? do you get to a point where you think, actually, there's not much point in me reading much more of this author because it's just going to be the same story just repeated over and over again, the same characters, the same stereotypes, the same tropes, the same settings? Um do you think sometimes it can get a bit dull, predictable? Yeah, I feel like I maybe have that ritual Crompton now, which saddens me because I loved her when I was first reading, you know, adult books in the early 2000s. She was one of the first ones I found. And and, I, it's, and the, some of them are very hard to find, so it was a nice little collector's hobby as well. But um, mm-hmm. I think maybe I also just read all her best ones at the beginning. So when I read them now, <laughs> it's, yeah it's sort of a slow downhill and they're still, you know, they're still entertaining. Um, can you hear Hargreaves making a fuss? <laughs> hey, sweetie. What do you want? <laughs> um, have you had that experience? <laughs> have you had that experience of, um, growing a bit tired of the author doing the same trick each time? Um, I think I, I, I've talked about this before. I went through a phase of reading a lot of Anne Tyler books and I got to the point where, 
each one was starting to blend into the next and I thought actually you know I'm not really getting much from these now because they're all feeling a bit samey I don't feel like I'm getting a distinctive story or I'm learning anything different from the book I read previously um and I actually just read Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strauss mm, yeah um I think I mentioned that last time yeah, yeah. and I, I really really enjoyed it but in many ways as I was reading it I was thinking this is pretty much just this like very similar to um anything is possible in the way that the story was structured and moved between different people's perspectives um and I thought actually if I do pick up another book by her in the future am I just going to get exactly the same narrative device and, and will will that satisfy me in the same way I love her writing and I love her characters but ultimately if she's just going to keep repeating the same device is it going to be something that I'm going to want to read or would I rather try something completely different by somebody else um and I think somebody who I enjoy reading, but whose books, there are certain books that I avoid because I, I think I, I won't like them because they do deviate from the norm. It's actually Margaret Atwood. So I love most of her books, mm. but I've always avoided that. And I know she hates the term sci-fi and <laughs> yeah. says, says that her books aren't sci-fi, but the more, you know, which ones I mean, the more science fiction-y ones. Mm. So mm. Oryx and Crake and um, what's it, Onyx and something. Um, which I've never read. I've read all of her other books apart from those because I'm, even though I love her writing, for me, that's a shift in genre that I'm not comfortable with. I like her books that stick to a particular genre and I do find them all quite distinctive amongst themselves. But the fact that I can be confident that the genre is, is something I'll enjoy is what makes me want to pick them up and, and read them because she's very diverse within that genre. And the ones that go away from that, I'm not as interested in reading. Yeah, I found that a bit with Alan Akeborn as well. Um, I got some of his, it was a collection of um, audiobooks of his plays, uh, dramatised. Well, not dramatised, they are dramas, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I love his sort of frivolous comedies. Which, uh, I think the first one I saw is Relatively Speaking, which was brilliant. It's, they're just so well put together and really clever, as well as being extremely funny. And so there are a few like that, and I really enjoy those. There's always a slightly dark, well, not always, often a slightly dark undertone, but that, you know, that enhanced it. And then I got to one called Henceforward, which is this bizarre dystopian thing about robots. And I just was <laughs> like, no, Alan, I can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and skipped that one. But luckily it coincided with another year of my century of books, so it was all right. <laughs> well, um, there you are. What a wasted experience. Exactly. <laughs> um but yeah, the one who came to my mind first with versatility was Susan Hill. Um, oh yeah, yeah, and I, and she uses the same name for all her books, but sometimes it feels a bit like you know Stephen King will have Richard Bachman, I think, as a pseudonym, or all those authors who write one genre under a pseudonym or one under their own name. Because she does those Simon Sorelier books, or how you say? It. Oh yeah. Um, and she does. I mean, the ones I most like are the the short. Um, sort of, I guess, literary novellas, um, The Beacon and um, A Kind Man and others. Um, and the, the marketing departments of the, of the various publishing houses she writes for obviously know <laughs> um, which pile to put them in because they're always designed quite differently from another but very identifiable in that sort of genre. Um, so with her, I just basically ignore all the things that I don't want to read because I don't want to read long crime novels, <laughs> so, uh, so I ignore those. But I do want to read 
well, yeah, these the novellas and, of course, the books about reading <laughs> um, that you are such a fan of as well. Yes, well, we all know how I feel about Susan Hill. Um, but, yeah, I think actually something that you've just said there, I'll pick up on, is the, the idea of, of marketing. And I think mm-hmm. a lot in, in recent years where especially authors who have now died and there are reprints of their entire back catalogue, um, they seem to all be published with the same design or colourway or something like that to, to link them all together. And there's an encouragement there from publishers to see a, a, an author's body of work as being quite um, mm. homogenous, yeah, yeah. And, and fitting within a particular theme. You know, oh, if you pick up this book, it's going to be the same as this book. Like they're all very similar. They're all something, you know, you can buy all of them and, and be confident that you'll enjoy every one. Um, and actually, in, there's one case in particular that I'm thinking of that, that that's been true, which is the Barbara Pym books that mm. were re- reprinted by Virago quite recently. And they've all got those sorts of chiclety style covers, which, you know, that's a different debate. But yeah. um, they none of those have disappointed. And actually, they are all, all very similar, but also very different in in the in their plots and things. Um, in and the characters that they of some of the characters do feature in in the same in different books, but each one is very distinctive. Is basically what I'm trying to say. Um, and I and I quite like that. I like the fact that I can go into the shop and I know what those books look like and I can pick them up. But I think there's a danger in doing that at the same time because, for example, an author like Margaret Atwood or um, someone like um, Hilary Mantle, for example, trying to put all of their books in the same generic category and, and put them all with the same pretty covers to attract people to buy all of them is, is setting readers up for an expectation that they're going to get something similar every time, and that's simply not the case. That's true, and I found the same to go to a recent author we've done with Penelope Fitzgerald. I've got all, all, a matching set of many of her books, but um, whilst the quality, I think, is consistent, and this this. A sort of authorial tone, I guess, that you would identify her writing. Mm. But she, yeah, she either writes these modern novels or modern to when she's writing them or historical fiction. Um, Beryl Bainbridge, the same, I guess. Uh, she switched halfway through her career from very autobiographical novels to, you know, writing about young Hitler and the Titanic and not the same book, different books. <laughs> <laughs> um, that would be very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Young Hitler on the Titanic. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's that's sort of um, the dependable in the sense that uh, I think if you like one Penelope Fitzgerald novel, you'll probably like another one. But but they're certainly not the same sorts of books. Um, and in fact, uh, what you're saying about marketing, or we were saying about marketing, made me think of E.M. Delafield and the Provincial Lady books, mm. where they took uh, Straw Without Bricks and called it the Provincial Lady in Russia, which is playing on that sense of consistency and dependability, but anyone who thinks they're picking up a provincial lady book when they then read a non-fiction account of visiting communes <laughs> is um, going to be sorely disappointed. Um, yes. And in fact, I got in an argument with an, with, a, in an, with an author over whether there were four or five provincial lady books because saying, don't be fooled by the marketing, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she's someone who I think has two quite distinct uh, styles, you know, the, the very funny and the very bleak. <laughs> um, yes. and they're often, even her bleak novels have humor in them, but, um, but they are very different. <laughs> so someone who has only loved the Prince Lady picking up consequences, say, for Stephanie book, um, would be rather shocked. In fact, I was quite shocked when I read yeah. it, I think. <laughs> I remember being quite disappointed by that, actually. Um, 
And the same with Saplings, actually, by Noel Stretfield. If you only mm-hmm. know Noel Stretfield for having read um, Ballet Shoes or, and such books like that, you pick up Saplings and you're like, this is an awful, a horrible, sad story. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that difference in, in tone uh, it can also be quite difficult to deal with. If, if you know, for example, I don't know, you pick up Anthony Trollope because you know you're always going to love his stories and he's hilarious and then you pick up one that's like this dreadful tragedy and you've picked it up because you're in a terrible mood and you've had an awful week at work and you want to be cheered up and then you read this book and get to the end and everyone's died you're going to be um quite upset and yeah we can can only pity those people who loved much to do about nothing and they went to see Hamlet (laughs) 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 nasty surprise (laughs) um I do think there's a, a sense that Perhaps increasingly authors are encouraged by their agents or by the publishers or whatever to stick to a similar sort of book each time. Oh, very much so. And I think there's um, there's a real pressure to kind of have a formula and be predictable in that way. And mm. hence the, the the marketing. So um, and I know for a fact that most most publishers will buy a book based on a two book deal. So it's the idea of right you've you've written this one write another similar one we'll sell both of them and then we'll see where we go after that mm-hmm. so there is the expectation that you are going to produce something that's going to satisfy um readers who've enjoyed your first book and that i think there is a i mean obviously i think if you're interested in writing historical fiction in the first place, you, you probably are going to be looking to write historical fiction um, more than you might do another one. Um, but I do think there's a danger there in, in discouraging people from experimenting and from having mm-hmm. a go at, at doing something different. Yeah, I think that is a shame because on the one hand, you do want something dependable and that's you know the basis of publishers making those decisions, I suppose. They're not trying to... Yeah make things awful for people <laughs> they just want yeah um but as an author it must be very frustrating if you want to experiment i mean some authors very happy writing the same sort of books each time i'm sure but um yeah uh, one author um and one well yes one of the reasons i love a milne so much is that i think he is the best of both worlds in this case in that he wrote a huge variety of um types of book uh, types of medium as well say you know plays poetry novels essays um but there's the same voice and the same sort of um i don't know very characteristic voice is the best word probably for it yes in all of those you you would i'd never mistake it for not being a even when he's being more somber or um the something that unites them all um so yeah the authors who can do versatility was maintaining dependability somehow giving you more of the same but you know sufficiently different that it keeps you interested the uh the best ones i think but it's a tricky feat to perform it is i think you have to be very skilled and i think there is an element of, of liking an author's voice mm. um, and their way of writing and their style of writing and and there probably are writers who i can't think of off the top of my head <laughs> who like for example uh william maxwell Hmm. Now, all of his books are, are, are quite different, um, different settings, different time periods. Um, they've all got a similar tone to them. But because the quality of his writing is so breathtaking, I know whatever he writes, I'm going to love. Yeah, and then there's someone like his friend, Sylvia Townsend Warner, where <laughs> I, know, <laughs> I know that I'm not of a universal in thinking of this, but I, you know, I love Lolly Widows and I really don't particularly like most of her other novels. So... Um, 
for me, the quality of her writing, whilst it's still there, isn't enough to keep me interested in the books that are set in times and countries that I don't think she has the same sort of authoritative voice in. Um, or just, perhaps it just don't interest me as much. So, yeah, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> Which is a shame. And then, yes, of course, Frank Baker, Miss Hargreaves, <laughs> Miss Hargraves, I should say, the, the cat's <laughs> changed me. But, um, writes the same sort of book each time, but only one of them was good. <laughs> so, <laughs> it can happen <laughs> that even dependability is not dependable. Well. Sounds very profound, doesn't it? Or okay. like, or like nonsense. I didn't know one of the two. We'll go with profound. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I think we should probably make a decision. <laughs> I think for me, I would go with dependability because I like to, I like to know what to expect. I like to be surprised sometimes, but if I want to be surprised, I'll try a different author. Yeah, very good point. I think. I'm the same. I very much admire versatility and it's one of those things that whenever yeah. someone says they write a different book each time, it's meant as a compliment and is a compliment. Mm. But um, I would rather... I think often when I'm turning to an author I've read lots of times before, it's because I want more of the same. <laughs> and because I want, <laughs> I, you know, and it is those, you know, Woodhouse, Christie, Crompton, they are comfort reads. Yeah. So, yes, I don't want to be jolted out of my <laughs> comfort. <laughs> no. Um, great. And speaking of Dorothy Whipple, as we were a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, in the second half of this episode, we're comparing um, The Priory by Dorothy Whipple and Housebound by Winifred Peck, which I think were probably... Are they both 1940s? No. Housebound's a bit later. No. No, I think they're both 30s, actually. Oh, right. Um, I, think Housebound, I think Housebound might be 41, but yes. Around... Both around that period. <laughs> The Second World War has definitely yeah. started in Housebound. So. Yeah, oh right, yes. yes. So very similar, within a few years of each other. Um, do you mind introducing us to the Priory, if I go for Housebound? Um, I'll <laughs> or would you rather do the other way? <laughs> um, to be honest, I'm not going to be very good at introducing either, so whichever is fine. Great, in which case, go for the Priory, because I've just finished Housebound. <laughs> okay. Um, so the Priory, I'm boarding here. I haven't read this book in about 10 years. Um, <laughs> uh, it's so long ago, I don't even have a review of it on my blog because I read it before I started blogging. Um, but it is about the Marwood family. So Christine and Penelope, who are in their early 20, very early 20s, who live with their widowed father in and weird aunt who likes <laughs> to paint awful paintings um, in an enormous house in the countryside and they are sort of trapped there really they've they still behave like children they still live in the nursery um the house is very unhappy the father's very unhappy no one's really got any relationship with each other um and the girls kind of dream of doing different things but they don't really know what to do or how to do it and there's nobody really to show them how to do it um and their father decides to get remarried um the very odd situation where <laughs> They don't really love each other and it's all a bit just strangely convenient. And then she has a child um, and it's... I can't really remember an awful lot about the actual plot, but I know in the end the girls end up learning a lot and growing up a lot and there's a romance plot in there somewhere as well. Well, yes, they both go off and have relationships when them gets married. Possibly both of them. I only read it <laughs> about a month ago, so I should be much better than this. Um, yes, they, all sorts of disillusionment comes their way. Yes. Um, Housebound is about 
uh, Rose something. <laughs> he literally finishes yesterday. <laughs> Rose Fairlaw, um, who is a sort of middle class, leaning on upper middle class uh, housewife, I guess, or just wife at the beginning of the novel in um, Edinburgh, cunningly disguised as Castleborough. <laughs> um, and it's it's wartime, early, early war, um, and her servants have left to work in a munitions factory, I think. Um, so she goes to the registry office to look for more servants, but there are none available, and she decides that she will, to quote another Persephone title, uh, run her home without help. <laughs> um, and that seems like it's going to be the whole gist of the plot, perhaps a sort of Monica Dickens-esque amusing novel about whether or not someone who's not used to housework can do it. Um, and there's so many elements of that. But it becomes a much... Um, deeper story, I guess, about uh, uh, unsatisfactory marriage um, and having children fighting the war and a, a distant relationship with her daughter um, and the catalyst for many of those, the later events of the novel is the arrival of a, of a major, there's a major in both these novels, um, who is becomes friends with Rose but also knows her grown-up daughter, Flora. That'll leave you now. Ah, very good. Um, so yes, I read The Priory <laughs> earlier this year. <laughs> um, you read it a long time ago. Uh, do you remember where it was in sort of order of your Whipple reading? Yeah, I think it was one of the first Whipples I read. I think I, my first one was Someone at a Distance. I think it might actually have been the second one that I read. And I remember absolutely loving it. Um, it's such a nice long book to get into. Um, it's like 500 something pages, isn't it? And it's, I, enormous, yes. it's really long and I really enjoyed the story I found it very different to someone at a distance I liked the the girls and this idea of them being trapped in this house and it's a bit of a buildings roman I suppose in the sense that they need to I mean they're women but really they're children and they need to mm. grow up and everyone's all a bit selfish and self-interested and it even though not everybody sorts themselves out by the end um it's yeah, I just thought, and I thought it was a really interesting period piece as well, thinking about how for middle class, upper middle class girls at that time, there still really wasn't opportunities for them to have jobs, to have an education. Their only option was marriage. And um, if you didn't find somebody or didn't meet anybody, then what would you end up doing? And I think their aunt is a bit of an example of that. She's a terrible watercolour painter and that's all she spends <laughs> her life doing. And there is a real sense there of frustration and entrapment, which I thought came through really well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Both these novels are about what happens after um, a family is split up by, I, um, I think, yeah, death in both cases and the remarriage, but in quite different ways. But uh, yes, yeah, so you say in the Priory that these daughters are still living in the nursery, even though they're adults, but young adults, but adults. Um, and it's it sort of treads that uneasy line between comedy and tragedy for a lot of the time, because I think there is a lot funny, particularly at the beginning of the novel. I mean, one of my favourite moments is he makes the major makes this proposal over the phone because he doesn't want to waste the trip of walking around to, to the house <laughs> to propose to, to Anthea in case she says no, <laughs> phone call I'm willing to make. <laughs> um, but she's a sort of cuckoo in the nest, I guess. Yeah. She, yeah, the, the daughters aren't welcoming, the aunt's certainly not welcoming, she feels threatened because she's been head of, or the female head of the household. Um, and then there's all sorts of below stairs uh, things as well, loyalties there, and there's a love triangle below stairs and all that sort of thing. Um I think um, 
what I, one of the things I liked about Housebound that perhaps for me was lacking in the Priory, which I did really enjoy, is that focus on a certain situation or a certain person, I guess, because it does feel a bit. You know, I never quite worked out where the focus of the novel was. Like we kept going between different viewpoints, and then out of the house, it seemed odd to me how much of the novel wasn't at the Priory, considering it was called the Priory. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas Housebound, so we've got this this very sympathetic uh, main character who's sort of like a, a real Mrs. Miniver, i.e. like a Mrs. Miniver, but not so perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, and I thought one of my favourite things about the novel is how uh, realistic the portrait of the marriage students because it's, it's not like they don't hate each other, but they're also not, you know, the, the stiff upper lip British couple facing the war together, united sort of thing. Um, basically, yeah, they marry because she... You know, they're, they're both um, widowed, I think. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, and they both they both want a partner to help look after their respective children. She, they both got children for their first marriage. They've one child together. Um, she loves his child. <laughs> he loves her child. <laughs> they don't seem to be particularly fond of their own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it was I thought really interesting the way that she had that imperfect marriage, but very con- conceivable marriage, and they're they're trying to work thing through that together but without really talking about it um yeah yeah. i think it's a very interesting depiction of marriage actually because as you say they don't hate each other they're perfectly fine with each other there's a kind of affection there but there's no Mm. love anymore there's no passion and they've both forgotten who they are and and they've there's that kind of upper class inability to communicate between them right both of them know something they're not happy but they wouldn't dream of actually talking to each other about it. And that house is just thick with everyone's silence of not really mm. saying anything. And Flora is the only one really who is kind of rebellious. And um, I suppose her frustration and, and her difficult uh, nature that I mean, her mother finds it so hard to deal with is probably because she's been brought up in an environment where no one ever does say what they really think um, and emotionally stunted, really. Yeah, and and she's had this sort of she's dramatised her you know terrible childhood and how awful her mother is as we learn through the the Mm. major's viewpoint because he's he's coming with this preconceptions of what Rose is like and it's yeah it's interesting to see I guess the histrionic teenager um I mean earlier than we might expect yeah I think as well it's a really powerful book from the perspective of looking at the impact of war and the long-term impact of war and how much the first world war ruined their lives really mm. and that's not really something that you tend to see explored very much you either you either get a book about world war one or you get a book about world war two and this book being set just before world war two or well during world war two but with um neither of the main characters too they're both too old to actually mm-hmm. do anything um, what you get is the memories of the previous one and the reason they are where they are is because both of them lost their spouses before and they, you know, Rose was very much in love with her first husband. He got killed and now she's having to send off the children that she loves to the war and this generation that got stuck in the middle and is terribly scarred by what happened to them. And it makes you think about how many children and parents were destroyed by the First World War, really. Yeah, it is. Um, it's, it's really interesting what you say. It, it does feel like a long shadow of World War One, mm. right into World War Two in a way that I don't think I've 
come across before. And at the, and at the same time, it's recognising, um, like The Village by Margarita Lasky did, which we talked about a few episodes ago, um, how the Second World War would change class. And it's, there's a really interesting, I mean, the whole premise of the, the book of her having to start doing housework is this really interesting class issue that, you know, her son, um, says he doesn't want his mother to have rough hands and to do all this, the servant's work. And, um, and her husband's horrified that she might have to answer the door to tradespeople. Yeah. Um, and ultimately that doesn't really become the main focus of the book. The, the housework sort of just becomes part and parcel of her life. But I mean, it's, it was quite amusing to read from my perspective what was in what the housework entailed. Um, yes. as, as someone who doesn't dust every day, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think I probably dust maybe once every three months. <laughs> she was constantly ashamed that she hadn't dusted everything each morning. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's kind of fascinating to see how people really did feel that housework was just beneath them and also yeah. what you were expected to do on a daily basis it's like look come on you've heaver what if you heaver every day the dust is still going to be there just heaver once a week i at mean sometimes that, at the very most yeah. Yeah, i mean sometimes it's two weeks for me because you know as soon as i heaver it's just dusty again so we'll... <laughs> um, i did find getting a cat makes me vacuum a lot more than i used to <laughs> yeah that must be a good incentive i mean to be honest i might as well have a cat the amount of hair that falls out of my head on a weekly basis because <laughs> i have wooden floors it's just disgusting I'm like, oh, oh god wow, yeah. there's hair everywhere i couldn't have my own big shop um <laughs> but for people who who don't know what I look like, I've got lots of very long brown hair, which means that it's just everywhere. Um, and my flatmate also has lots of very long blonde hair. So together we just make <laughs> wonderful multicoloured wigs. Exactly. Um, so it's, I, it's interesting what you said at the beginning about the book, because it does set up this expectation that it is going to be this dreadfully humorous take on, oh, mm. look, what a silly woman who's finally got to, to do for herself and let's look at all the silly mistakes she does in in trying to do everything by herself um and there is a small element of that and i i would actually part of me wanted the book to be that because i mm-hmm. wanted i wanted to get more of an insight into the reality of, of what it was like for people to go from literally never lifting a finger in their own home not even cooking for themselves to suddenly having to take care of everything and bearing in mind this is a time before you've got conveniences like we have you know it's mm. very well whipping the hoover around for five minutes but when you've got to brush the floors with a with us like a broom and then then mop up and then get down on your hands and knees and scrub it it's it's a completely different situation and i can imagine it must have been pretty daunting um, and while i love the book and i love the the undercurrents in the story around it i think there is there must be a book out there that really is about that well have you read one pair of hands by Monica Dickens. I haven't, no. Oh, it's brilliant. It's it's not quite that, but she essentially, she's a fairly privileged woman who decides that she's going to become a cook. Um, right. Mostly to write about it, but also she wants to see life and all that sort of thing. And it's based on Monica Dickens' actual experiences. And yeah, she's a, she becomes a cook in, in a variety of different houses, and it's extremely funny, and she's, you know, she's very bad at it when she starts, and she learns, etc. But yes, I recommend that heartily. Mm. Um, let's go back to, uh, the Priory. Um, so yes, you, you said you really loved it. Uh, did you, were there any reservations you had about it or, or comparisons with other Whiffle novels? Um, no, I just remember really loving it and I don't know why I haven't read it since. Um, I think 
it will be when I move into my my new place and get all my books out. I think it will probably be the book I I reread quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, because my mum actually has has had and re and reread uh, read uh, all of my Dorothy Littles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think actually this is one, and she really enjoyed this one as well. And it's quite a, a feat for her to get through a longer book because it takes her quite a long time to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, she really liked it as well. And I think for me, I liked it because I know you said it, it, it was a bit strange having stuff happening outside of the Priory, but I liked the fact it was quite a dynamic novel and you got lots of different stories and, um, traveled around a bit. And I liked all the different characters and everyone's different, um, kind of plot devices and the ways that the things that they, everyone wanted something slightly different. And I found the characters quite diverse and very individual. I just thought it was a really fascinating portrait. I loved, I wasn't, it wasn't anything like what I expected either. Um, cause I, I'm not coming from, I mean, I'd read someone at a distance and obviously there's always a, a darker mm-hmm. current running underneath her novels, but this one is, is quite different to, to that. There's nobody does anything terrible. It's just an interesting look at with some strange people it's a strange situation that she sets up yeah i think i mean i did really enjoy it i don't want to come across like i didn't but i think from the other whipples i'd read i was expecting perhaps more psycho psychological depth to the characters and i found everyone slightly heightened so you know, everyone would proclaim everything and there'd be these big emotional moments and then everyone would get on with it in the next scene was something like well i think someone at a distance is her masterpiece it was just so much yeah more, so so nuanced and so um well thought through and well structured um whereas the prairie felt more like a really entertaining um quite quite funny and quite melodramatic soap opera um which you know i love a soap opera so that's fine <laughs> but um but i th- i don't think any of the characters ever felt completely real to me in the way that the ones in housebound do no well i really want to reread it now because I think it's the, probably the Persephone book I remember the least, strangely enough. Mm. Um, and it's the one I've, I think it's the only one I've never reread. And I wonder oh, why. Wow, okay. I think maybe the length put me off. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I do need to, to get back to it, but I, I wouldn't say it was my favorite, um, Whipple. I think the Green Banks is a, will always be my favorite, but mm. I think she's, she's doing something quite different in the Priory. I think it, she tries to kind of, do a, something a bit like um, Greenbanks in setting it all in one house, but where Greenbanks is more successful at doing that, this one ends up straying around. I think perhaps she's experimenting a bit. Yeah, yeah. And have you read any other Winifred Peck? Um, I don't think I have. She's quite hard to get hold of, isn't she? Yeah, the people, the Farid Middlebrow um, publishers have just done at least one of hers. Um, oh, right. she, she, um, she wrote some detective novels as well, I think. I think I've got one called Arrest the Bishop, which I think is a detective, or at least a crime novel. And Bewildering Cares, they, they republished. But I've not read anything else by her. Um, I do have those two and maybe one more. Um, but Bewildering, Bewildering Cares is about the life of a vicar's wife, so I really should <laughs> read that one. Oh, yes, I remember seeing that. No, I should read that. Because I do think her writing is lovely. Yeah, I just read a review of it on um, Claire the Captive Reader's blog, and she wasn't a huge fan, but she not, um, not didn't hate it, but wasn't as impressed as she was hoping, which is sort of put me off, but also sort of makes me want to see if I agree. <laughs> um, 
But yes, it'll be interesting to see what, if she is dependable or versatile. <laughs> well, yes. Um, well, do, do you have more you want to say about these, or shall we come to I our so. decision making? Um, yes. Well, which one are you going to choose for these books you don't remember? <laughs> <laughs> I think I would actually go for Housebound because of its unexpectedness and the the emotional depth of it, which I found quite moving. I remember actually crying a couple of times reading it and thinking it was just very. It, communicated something essential about humanity which touched me deeply yeah um i think i would also go for housebound i think um, i really like both of them but i think it, it's just it's a really interesting novel and it's the sort of book i wish that you know they'd made a 1940s film out of it would have with mm. greer garson or someone playing, playing yeah. would have been great um I did look up to see if anyone had made any films of one of her Peck novels because it, this, she seemed the sort of first thing they might have done, but IMDb says no. Um, well, maybe <laughs> somebody needs to address the balance because true. it's just we, we get endless repeats of Austin and Agatha Christie, which don't get me wrong, I love, but it would be nice to have some TV series of, of different authors, wouldn't it? Yeah, Miranda Richardson, if you're listening, I think you'd be great in an ITV drama of this. So. <laughs> um Make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there we go. We're in complete agreement with our decisions today. Isn't that nice? Wow, look at that. It happens sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yes, in the next episode, we will be doing another Dorothy Ripple, High Wages, another Persephone, um, and the uh, 1922 novel, The Luck, by Ines Bitt, which I'm very much looking forward to rereading. Oh, it's such a lovely yeah. book. Yes. And I even have a gap for 1922 on my century of books. Oh, there we are. And I think I've almost finished the 1920s. <laughs> uh, it's going to be a bleak year in December <laughs> when I have to just read the 1970s. <laughs> you need to spread it out a bit. I know, but I love the 1920s. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Simon here. Just a quick word to say that you can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash books. Special thanks to Elizabeth and Randy, and thanks to everyone else who has supported us there. There's various rewards, including a bloopers um, reel coming soon. Obviously, very happy for people just to keep listening. We love that you do. Bye. (laughs)